Hello, I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband, and thank you for listening to this podcast. I'm the rabbi's husband. We seek to unearth the jewels inside the Torah. Torah means learning. Torah means teaching. And every line, every verse, every passage in the Torah is full of meaning to help us live happier, healthier, more productive, and more meaningful lives in the most practical way today. And our goal here at The Rabbi's Husband is to speak with a guest about his or her chosen passage to unearth the great meaning inside that passage for the benefit of everyone listening so that we can understand the lessons and apply it in our daily lives starting tomorrow. Today, I am so delighted to have as the guest on The Rabbi's Husband, my friend, who I actually met when my book, The Telling, came out in March. We haven't actually met in person yet, but we've communicated so much on Zoom and on email, and I can't wait to meet in person. This is Rabbi Mark Leibowitz. Rabbi Leibowitz is the leader of Temple Adath, or the South Florida Center for Jewish Renewal. In addition to being a rabbi, he is a musician and a composer, having written and composed over 30 original Jewish songs and melodies, including three named after each of his children. Rabbi Leibowitz is the son of a man who, like me, is a rabbi's husband. The difference is that both of Rabbi Leibowitz's parents our rabbi, as well as many of his ancestors before them. So Rabbi Leibowitz comes from a long line of rabbis, a long tradition of Jewish study, learning, and practice. And it is such an honor and such a delight to welcome my friend Mark Leibowitz here to the rabbi's husband to discuss his chosen passage, which is not from the Torah itself, but from the Psalms. Now, Mark, uh, before we get started, let's just talk a little bit about you. Now, there's so many interesting aspects to you, one of which is not only are you the son of a rabbi's husband, you are also the son of a rabbi's wife. How many people our age have two parents who are rabbis? Right. Yeah. We're the spawn of two rabbis. Yes. My, my brother and I. Yes. And we have an adopted brother, too. And now, now that both my brother and I are married, then you have spouses as well who are connected. So we're all the spawn of, of two wonderful, amazing, uh, inspiring, holy rabbis. So was your mother one of the first ordained uh, women rabbis? Uh, she was among the first because, uh, yeah, this uh, she was ordained back in early 90s. She began as a rabbi's wife. They met when my father was a budding rabbi. This is funny. My mother, when she first started dating him, this must have been early 60s, probably 61, not, not even, no. Oh, it had to be maybe 65, 66. And she was dating one of the sons, uh, some really wonderful members of his community. And they even said to him, because he wanted to meet her, my father wanted to meet her, just to meet, you know, the, the girlfriend of, of the son of, of his, uh, some of the machers in his community. <laughs> so mamish scandalous, right? So this is what they say to him. They say, Philip, which is my father's name, Rabbi Philip Labowitz. They say, Philip, we can't, you know, have you meet her because you're probably going to fall in love with each other. That's exactly what they said. And so what happened was he didn't plan on it because these things are never planned. So he hires her to do some uh, camera works. My mother was an artist and she began as a painter and also as a photographer. So he hires her to do photography for his temple. And one thing leads to another and they fall in love just as, the, as that family had predicted. And I, from what I hear, that young man married someone else and was very happy. So thank God. But that's how they met. And my mother, if the story continues, my mother, she goes to hear him and her father is a rabbi and 
her grandfather's a rabbi. So I'm a fifth generation rabbi. And uh, if my children want to become rabbis, you know, if, if they if they want to suffer in this way <laughs> as well, they're certainly welcome to do that. Uh, they, they might become a rabbi as well. So when did your mother become a rabbi? She became a rabbi in 92. But you have to hear this. this. How much time do we have? Plenty. Okay. So you got to hear this. She walks up to see him in shul. And she goes to hear him. She's walking through the parking lot because on Shabbos, during uh, services on Shabbos in particular temples, they would blast the the sound of, of uh, what was happening in, in the Beit Knesset, in, in the uh, in the home, in the shul. They would blast it out to the um, to the parking lot. So while you're walking in, you can hear the rabbi speaking. And as she walks in, she says, "Oi, he really needs my help." <laughs> so she was absolutely right. Uh, he's a wonderful man, a great speaker, and she uh, she was uh, very kind and uh, and helped him through uh, through many years. And he um, and then eventually they they he was the rabbi of a shul here in Florida, and then eventually they formed their own temple. And I'm just the new pisher who took over that that uh, that temple about 20 years ago. They found they found the synagogue together when they were both rabbis. Yes, they, they, she he was a rabbi and she was a rabbi's wife and she did not want to be a rabbi's wife. She she even hates the term rebbitzin, uh, so she wanted to she, you know she wanted to be a rabbi herself. So she studied with uh, Reb Zalman Shechter Shalomi, who she found at the beginning of, of the renewal movement. She was one of his first chassidim and one of his first talmidim, and uh, and then. He ordained her, and then my parents both started their own shul. Wow! So, are are you and your parents both renewal rabbis? So, my father was ordained Orthodox. Oh, he went to Goner Yisrael, and so it's a Mamashim Orthodox yeshiva. My mother was ordained by Aleph Renewal uh, by by my uh, by our Rebbe. And then I found my own Rebbe. You know, every child wants to have their own Rebbe, right? So my parents were were, were my Rebbe's, and of course, Zalman was my Rebbe. But I also found my own Rebbe in Remuchayel Shapiro. And I have other teachers as well who are very, very important and very, very sweet. Uh, the, but that was the beginning. And so I went to Scottsdale Torah Institute. And so I was ordained primarily as a an Orthodox rabbi. Oh. But like, you know, a very... Uh, liberal Orthodox rabbi, but I eventually became more and more liberal, so I can hardly be called Orthodox now. Very interesting. So, uh, well, there's so many more interesting things to talk about with, with, with regards to that story, but let's go to the psalm. And I'm so interested that you picked this psalm, 34, 13, and 14, two lines with so much profundity in these two lines. So tell us what these two lines are and why it's significant to you and what you think it has to teach us about how to live happier, better, and more meaningful lives today. I'll do my best. <laughs> so when I used to dive in the beginning of my rabbinic career, I would always be on the lookout. You know, it was like, it was, I'm davening for me was like thrift shop. I would be on the lookout for really colorful psukim that I could take and then dress up in some way. But when you're davening, aren't you going to a structured liturgy? Yeah, this is part of the. This is part of our our morning davening. But but you say when you're davening, you're you're looking for parts of the liturgy to focus on specifically that day? I can't help it. Like when I was davening, certain things would just pop up like protrusions on the page and they would grab my attention. It's beautiful. And I would literally, and, and you know, there are certain gemaras that, that, that warn you against <laughs> getting lost in your davening, but I didn't much care. I really loved like when something would pop up and get my attention and I would repeat it over and over. And I also, my parents were very wise. They, um, they sent me to yeshiva, but they also sent me to an ashram, if you could believe that. Really? 
Yes. So I learned uh, meditation and, and I also studied Jewish meditation and Kaplan's, uh, you know, understanding of that. But the mantra-esque davening that you would do in a in sort of a an ashram setting, which is a lot of what the renewal movement brings, which why well, I like the renewal movement, was the repetition of certain psukim that sort of bring you into the uh, depth of what that pasuk means, and then eventually out you know, into the ether. So you elevate even above concepts and words in general. And that's where you really begin to touch God. The the psalm is, it spoke to me because this seems to be the way that I want to live my life. And it's become almost a motto for the community. So I looked at this psalm and I, it's, 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 right? Let me, I'll, I'll read it to you from the Tanakh. Who is the one who is desirous of life, right? Ohev Yamim, this is where it really got my attention. Ohev Yamim, and then on the next line, it begins, So I come from sort of that Karbachian, you know, way of, of putting together uh, musical passages, where you can bring one musical passage uh, into another and, you know, use poetic license there. So I captured these three essential components. One was, to love time, that you love the moment, love the present moment, or love time as it is, and it shows up in your life. To see the good, and to care for your words, for they create the landscape of your life. And I wrote this into a song, which uh, I don't have to sing for you now unless you want me to later. And uh, it's become sort of the anthem of our community, to love your time in the present moment, to see the good, and to care for your speech, for that is what forms your world. And that's what I read into this particular song. And there's a lot to unpack from those three concepts. I think it's very interesting if you go to uh, 3412 and the version I have here, and maybe this is an incorrect translation. And so, of course, correct me. What man is he that desires life and loves many days that he might see good? Now, many people might think that we do mitzvot, good deeds, in order to get some kind of reward, either in this life or the next life. This passage seems to be saying we should think about it the opposite, is that we should live our life in order to do mitzvot. In other words, that the way to live life is to wake up in the morning and to say to oneself, how many mitzvot can I do today? Because I'm living, I now have this awesome opportunity to do mitzvot. That is that how you read 3412? Absolutely. In terms of how you fill your day, right? What I hear you saying, Mark, is that you fill your day with mitzvot. That's it. If you have time, fill the day with mitzvot. God teaches us to fill the world and to fill time, to fill space divine. That's the reason why we're alive. We're alive, according to this, to do mitzvot. Right, yes. So let's take a look at that. What does that mean? So what does it mean to do mitzvot? Does it mean just to perform acts? Or does it mean to invest divinely your action and in a way that that it creates good in the world as we relate to time and, and action? So the Chernobyl Rebbe, the Baramayim Chaim, said something once that blew my mind. He said that, he didn't say this, I, I paraphrase, but I'll get to, to his words. You know, there are a few ways to look at time. Number one, you could see time as a circle, a cycle that comes around, right? So if you miss it once, you it'll come around again, right? That's sort of the Hindu-Buddhist understanding, I imagine. Then you have this idea that time is like a river, right? More Native American, that it flows. And it goes, and if it comes back, it comes back. If it doesn't, it's just time. It's a flow. The Chinoetsu Rebbe brought me into the 
the Yiddish understanding of time, Jewish understanding of time. He said that time is a vessel. Time is a vessel that you fill with mitzvot, as you say, right? That you fill divinely in partnership with God. When we say, when the Torah says, Vayikralakim lor yom, it's uh, God calls light day, right? That day has a certain light component, meaning that if it isn't filled with light and joy, it's really not a day. That's the idea. If it's not filled with mitzvahs, it's really not a day. It's night. It's like Thanksgiving, right? Thanksgiving is not a day. It's, it's a night, but it feels like day. It feels like light because your family's around and you know, you're cooking and you're talking and you're loving. And so when the Bermayim Chaim, when this great uh, Rebbe from the, uh, from the 18th century, in the ni- early 19th century, when he says time is a vessel, he means that, you know, the sun comes up once in the morning, right? Here comes the sun. You could say once 24 hours uh, in a cycle, a ball of hot gas appears over the horizon. But instead we say, here comes the sun, right? So it's, it, this is how you look at, at life. This is how you look at day. It has to be with a certain interest. So how could one do this very practically? Okay, so uh, one of your congregants or one of your admirers comes to you and says, okay, I want to do 3412. I think I get it, but I'm not going to really get it until I do it. So I want to do it. Rabbi standing on one foot tomorrow morning. It's nine o'clock at night, say. And so forget the rest of the night for better, for worse. Starting tomorrow morning, I want to do 3412. What should I do? All right. So if we're looking at 3412, to love each moment means literally to love what unfolds perfectly in the moment. The people that you're with uh, in the best way that you know how and the circumstances in the best way that you know how, but also uh, to love what you anticipate. So to be loving time is to love the process of time. So part of what faith is, right? Part of what it means to be faithful is to believe that good will emerge. That's it. To believe in God is to believe in the good. So I believe that God brings all of this to some essential good. And that's also having a loving relationship with time. But I believe that if not in this moment, then in the next moment, some good will come. It goes on to say, and it's sort of shoncha, to guard your tongue. So there are many ways to understand this. Practically, uh, I read a book by Daniel Yankovich, and it taught me a great deal about how to to approach people and, and how to make dialogue and, and speech work for me. Because anytime that you have someone who is uh, lucky enough to grace your presence, you don't want to miss an opportunity to restore them with speech. Speech can be essentially restorative. So if you're giving someone a practical application for how to put this uh, pasuk, this phrase into action, it would be number one, to love the moment presently, but also, you know, the anticipation of the good coming. Lero Tov, to see that good and to see the good in others. And thirdly, is to be really careful for how you speak. And so what I learned from Yanklovich was, number one, to overcome certainty. Whenever you talk to someone, as soon as you have a certainty, then you make no room for their certainty or for the, what they're feeling or for what they're understanding. So, you know, the, the, the sages say, did you leave room for others' wisdom? Just a matter for a second. I, I think it's important to note if this is right, which I'm pretty sure it is, that it says for others' wisdom, implying or more than implying, stipulating this is Jews and non-Jews. The, the Jewish sages taught us that there's wisdom throughout the nations and that it's our Jewish obligation to seek wisdom wherever it is and to bring it into our Jewish lives and our Jewish hearts. 
Everyone is our teacher, says the Gemara. Everyone. Once, let's say, let's say you approach someone who has a different understanding of, you know, of God and religion and, and, and dogma. So if they have something to teach you, if you're not ready to really uh, be embracing of another person's truth, another person's certainty, then you're not ready for dialogue. And then speech, you're not even ready for that level of speech because speech requires a certain level of openness and wisdom, according to the Torah, is that openness. Absolutely. And I think it's very interesting that the passage lays it up a great question. 